Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. On this episode, we have something a bit different. I will be talking with Christina Bergston, who is the owner and founder of the Animal Law Firm. For those of you who are graduating from law school or just looking to change your career and wondering whether you can make a living doing animal law, Christina is here to tell you that the answer is a resounding yes. Her firm specializes primarily in companion animal issues, which, of course, are important and often underserved in and of themselves, but also, in Christina's eyes, are part of the process of waking people and the legal system up to the idea that animals matter and the people who care about them matter, too. This was a fascinating conversation, and I'm sure will be inspiring to many of you. First, I'll take a moment to quickly ask for your support for Our Hen House, which is the not-for-profit that produces this podcast along with the Our Hen House podcast. Please go to ourhenhouse.org donate. There you can join our flock for $100 a year or $10 a month, or you can make whatever donation you can afford and are comfortable with, and we would be so grateful for that. If you are not already a listener of Our Hen House, our other podcast that I co-host with Jasmine Sager, here's what you've been missing. I interviewed Faraz Harsini about Allied Scholars for Animal Protection, an organization he founded to support and unite animal rights groups on campuses. An unbelievably compelling interview about a really, really needed project. Jasmine's fascinating interview with Ayana Goodfellow, British actor and passionate activist on many different fronts, and my interview with Chris Alieri, a New York City activist fighting for the piping plover, a tiny bird found on the beaches of New York City about the efforts to save this endangered bird and the benefits of focusing your passion for animals on saving one species. Now, let's get to that interview. Christina Bergston is the owner and founder of The Animal Law Firm, a Colorado law firm with a multi-state practice. She started practicing animal law in Philadelphia before moving to Colorado and eventually founding the firm, which specializes in matters such as dog bite defense, suing police departments when cops shoot dogs, pet custody, veterinary malpractice, and others. She will be joining me right after this. The Brooks Animal Law Digest is a premier online free publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on today's most important animal law and policy issues. The United States Digest is published weekly as a collaborative effort with the Brooks McCormick Jr. Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School. The Canadian Digest is published twice monthly with the support of the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. This digest is a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the animal law field. Subscribing is like having a full-time lawyer researching and reporting to you on current legal developments related to animal protection. Features include updates by category and key terms, as well as links to background materials that will orient the reader into that specific issue. You can subscribe to the U.S. and Canadian Brooks Animal Law Digests at thebrooksinstitute.org. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It's my pleasure. We were just talking before I started recording. 
But this is kind of a different interview than many of the ones I do on the podcast. I usually focus on one big case and go into it in depth. And I do want to focus on the substantive issues. And you did offer up a case to talk about. But I really want to talk about the issues involved in founding and operating an animal law practice, how that works, how do you succeed, and kind of cover a little touch, at least, of a lot of different types of cases that you end up dealing with. And so perhaps we should start talking a little bit just about the firm itself. So people get an idea of what we're talking about. Where is it? What do you specialize in? Who works there? Sure. Let's start with where we are. I often joke that I time travel all day long every day. Um, We have an office in Philadelphia and we have our flagship office in Denver, Colorado. So currently we serve Colorado, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. And I'm in the process of getting my New York and Texas bar licenses as well. Does that mean that you're admitted to practice and are all of your lawyers admitted to practice in all of those states? No, right now I'm the only lawyer admitted to practice in three states, soon to be five. Kara Dwin is my Denver, Colorado attorney, so she's admitted to practice just in Colorado. Okay. And how does a multi-state practice work? It just seems very confusing. Do you have individual attorneys working in different states? If you're practicing federal law, that would be one thing. But the law really varies a lot when it comes to the kind of issues you're dealing with, doesn't it? Kind of. So the first answer I would give to that is the legal principles are all the same. The difference, of course, is in the minutiae where, you know, Colorado's dog bite statute is 18 9 4 204.5. Whereas in New Jersey, ooh, let's see if I can get this right. It's like 4 colon 19 2. So yeah, I, mean, I, I won't hold you to the <laughs> section numbers. Thank you. <laughs> so I mean, more or less the verbiage by and large is the same. The execution of how the case will play out in terms of applying the theory is similar, if not the same. It's just, like I said, it's the minutiae yeah. of how things are worded, how severe the penalties are. Um, like For example, the dog bite statute in Colorado, it's a misdemeanor, no matter what, at a minimum, it's a misdemeanor. But then in Pennsylvania, it's what's called a summary offense, which is less than a misdemeanor, but more than a parking ticket. And then in New Jersey, it's also a misdemeanor, but it's usually municipal. So it doesn't show up on background checks. You're saying like the principle is the same, but the details are different. But the details are what drive lawyers crazy. I mean, it's the hard part is knowing which courthouse you go to. And, you know, stuff that it's really hard to look up in the books and getting to know like different lawyers in different areas. So I admire that you are able to pull this off in a number of jurisdictions. (laughs) I I would have a hard time in just one. Did you go to law school knowing that you wanted to do animal law or was this a late career change? Not late. Obviously, you're not late in your career, but a a subsequent career change. I'll take that as a compliment because I'm a lot older than I probably look uh, or so I've been told. To answer your question, no, I did not go to law school thinking I would have a career in animal law because as a lot of people ask me, oh, you can make money doing this. So, you know, I didn't anticipate that there was going to be a career for me. I went to law school shortly after the Great Recession started, and it had not concluded by the time 
I finished law school. So when I went to law school, I took as many different types of classes as I could to diversify my education base because I didn't know where I was going to get a job or what area of law I was going to get a job in. Ironically, the only class I didn't take was like family law, domestic relations, because I was like, I will not do that no matter what. But beggars can't be choosers. And my first job out of law school was working for a family (laughs) law firm. Divorces are recession proof. So that was my first job out of law school. My bosses were great. I had two really great bosses who just set an amazing example for what it means to be an attorney. They had great work-life balances. They weren't nasty, short-tempered. They didn't have minimum billable hours for me to meet every week. I mean, it was really a, a dream come true for a baby lawyer. They they were just really nice. And they said, hey, we know family law is tough. Is there anything else you want to do? And I said, how about environmental law and animal law? Because I had studied environmental law in law school, kind of hoping that I would end up doing that, but that did not happen. And they said, well, what's animal law? And I said, I don't know. Well, let's just put it on the website. (laughs) (laughs) And then next day, phone blowing up. I mean, my first case was what's called replevin. It was a, a pet custody dispute where my client was trying to get his pug named Anastasia back from a former neighbor. And then really kind of the rest is history. So I mean, I've been practicing animal law almost exclusively for 10 years. And yeah, that's kind of the origin story for my office. That's really interesting. But since you brought up pet custody, let's talk about it a little bit. And you use the word replevin, which if there are non-lawyers listening, sorry. (laughs) But as lawyers know, that's a property term, a personal property term. And pet custody is a subject that gets in the papers a lot more than other animal law issues and was a subject that people have heard of. But it's not really in most situations a custody dispute. It's a personal property issue. When I teach about pet custody, it's sometimes seen from the outside. These are cases in which which everyone wants the dog or the cat, you know, the unusual situation in which the the animal is kind of sitting pretty and everybody wants him or her. But when you look a little closer, the animal's often used as a pawn in these cases. I think that's probably more frequently the case in a lot of them, especially when it has to do with divorcing couples. Is that the experience you have been that pet custody is frequently kind of similar to child custody in that way, that the interests are not totally clearly for the animal's benefit? Yeah, the interests are not always altruistic, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, actually, that's one of the cases that I I believe we sent over to you. We have an appeal currently pending for a pet custody dispute, wherein the suing party, let's just call him Ryan, and then my client, the defending party, let's just call her Carrie. Ryan was abusive to Carrie throughout the relationship. They separated. They had adopted a dog during the relationship, and then... After the relationship ended and they were physically separated from one another, Ryan kind of went off the deep end and was abusing drugs and had all sorts of drug issues. And this shows up in the transcript, so it's not anything he hasn't said himself. Mm -hmm. And he begged Carrie to take the dog, just begged her. And it's in text messages, emails, social media messages. Anyway, so she takes the dog. He goes into treatment. He comes out of treatment. And then months later, he says, well, I want my dog back. And she says, no, you gave me the dog. The dog is safe with me. So he sues her, right? And I'm simplifying it a lot because there's all this extra. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) I mean, the back and forth. (laughs) I shouldn't even say back and forth. Just him constantly, like the incessant talk. So she got a protection order around the same time that he sued her. And essentially, the trial court said, 
you're a hysterical woman. You're abusing the protection order process to keep this dog from this nice man who has suffered so much because of his drug problems. So we're going to give the dog back to him. That's how the transcript reads to me, you know. Anyway, so we're in an appeal. His answer was due and he did not file a response. So we're going to move for default. She's in possession of the dog. So. Oh, then you're in good shape there. Yeah, we're lucky in that regard. I've got another case where my client is not in possession of the dog and it's pretty traumatizing. But I mean, yeah, as will often happen throughout this interview, (laughs) I will give you a long answer to a short question. But you hit the nail on the head that dogs, cats, whatever animal are used as pawns in further manipulative, abusive schemes, especially. I would have guessed that frequently your clients don't understand that this is well, except in a few states that do have pet custody statutes, which is, I guess, a growing trend. There's a few of them. Mm-hmm. People don't understand this property question. The best interests of the animal, it's no more than in the best interests of the car. It doesn't come into court. That must be very hard for clients to understand. It is. And we have that conversation at the outset a lot of times because a lot of times clients will send me 300 pages of bills and pictures and doggy daycare, like all the things that they've done. and Like a child custody. They're thinking of it as a child custody case. Yeah, that must be very frustrating. It is. Yeah, it's shocking. The case I teach about pet custody when I teach in my class has to do with this case in New Jersey where they ended up, these people did not like each other. You know, they're getting divorced or separated. I forget whether they were married. And the court ordered that they would share custody of this dog. They have to bring the dog back and forth, which is not good for the dog. And they're tied together for the rest of their life because of this decision. It was a terrible decision, I think. Courts have to pay a little bit more attention to reality in these cases. All right. I just wanted to add that story. But now I want to go into some of the other areas. I noticed, and you mentioned in the beginning, and I know this from other people who have had animal law practices, that a really big part is dangerous dogs. You don't call them dangerous dog cases. That's what the statutes usually call them. I think you call them dog by defense rather than assuming from the beginning that the animal is dangerous. That's the question that's actually before the court. Is is this an important part of your practice? And how do these cases come to you? It's definitely an important part of my practice. I would say dog bites make up approximately 40% of the practice. Pet custody makes up the other 40%. And then the remaining 20 is just... Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Dog bites are huge in our office. And they come to us just online through Google searches. That's how most people find us. Uh, Because our client base primarily is millennials. And now as Gen Z is getting older, it's increasingly becoming Gen Z. We get the occasional Gen X or baby boomer generation. But for the most part, by and large, it's people who grew up with the internet. And so that's where and how they find us. You have a case here that you want to talk about a little bit, and we can go into depth a little bit on the case involving Zion. And I just want to say, You know, this is a tough area. You know, I always keep my dog on a leash and well, my dog is no longer with me, but you know, when I've had dogs and I have sympathy for people who they're walking their dog on a leash and another dog comes along and is aggressive. I mean, that's such an upsetting situation, but I do feel like people's expectations of what normal dog behavior is has become kind of unrealistic, as if they're stuffed animals almost. They're never supposed to argue with each other. They're never supposed to show the normal threatening behavior. They don't know anything about dogs. Do you find that's the case in these particular cases? Oh my God, this is like my soapbox. Yes, this is what I complain about all the time when it comes to these cases. Exactly your point. 
animals, and this is where I think the animal property designation is is so messed up because it's like if we really believe animals are property, then property injuring another property shouldn't be charged as like a strict liability crime. It should be charged as property damage, you know, like vandalism or something like that. And, and, and so to your point, it's like, well, we obviously recognize that animals are more than property because we're not charging these things as just vandalism or property damage. We're charging them as like misdemeanors that are serious and with serious consequences and fines. But at the same time, we're not taking into account the dog's behavior who's accused of biting, right? So if it's dog on dog, what always happens is the victim dog, oh, this dog now is traumatized and emotionally distressed. And, you know, this dog had to go through all this and it's terrible. And it is, it is terrible. It's traumatizing for anyone to see their dog get attacked. I assume it's different in a situation where a dog is attacked and killed. You're talking about a dog fight breaks out. And nobody's seriously injured. I mean, in either case, whether a dog is killed or a dog is injured, because a lot of times the cases that come to me are someone who owns a Doberman or a Pitbull or a German Shepherd, and the other dog that died was like a Chihuahua. They're so frequently like that. Yeah. yeah. And I guarantee you every single time, 10 times out of 10, that Chihuahua started it. They're the piranhas of the land. <laughs> Those dogs, they can start a fight. All right. I'm going to get so so many comments, but uh, okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, I mean, no, I, love, my, I, I, love I, have, I have a couple of friends who are chihuahuas and I love them dearly, but I hear you. <laughs> sorry, I'm not trying to breed discriminate. It's just, I say this a lot. And it's just like, I sympathize with the chihuahua. I'm, I'm, I'm small too. Like I get it. <laughs> I've got Napoleon complex. So I get it. But I mean, yeah, I'm not going to pick a fight with a football linebacker or whatever. I don't know anything about football. So that's <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like I'm going to lose that fight, but I know that because I can rationalize it. Whereas the chihuahua can't do that. And no, that's can- not how dogs are. Right. And neither can the German Shepherd or whatever, right? Like he's not sitting there being like, oh, I should take it easy on this dog because he's so much smaller than me. It's like, hey, fun toy, you know? Yeah. No, and it's our fault that dogs who still have the instinct of dogs, probably the instinct of dogs who are kind of the same size, have been altered so that they're wildly different strengths and sizes. And one is much more vulnerable to the other. Their behavior has not caught up with that. The chihuahuas are still just as tough as a big dog. And the big dogs are still just as unrealistic about, as you say, I I shouldn't pick on this dog because he's smaller than me. They don't have that in them. There are all these expectations about who dogs are. And Mm -hmm. I, I want you to tell us about the case of Zion, because I was particularly taken by this case because, you know, it's something that's happened to me when I had the dog on the leash. But it's this idea that dogs who get into fights that aren't lethal, you know, they get into a fight. That is something that dogs just do. And people don't seem to accept that anymore. People just want dogs to be stuffed animals who loved you. Oh, 100%. 100%. And I think to your point about dogs getting into non-lethal fights, like, We call them fights, but they're not really fights to the dogs, right? Like a lot of times it's just because dogs only have claws and teeth and barking to communicate with one another. After a certain point, you can only vocalize so much before claws and teeth are a more effective means of communication, right? So, And I think that that the laws do not take that into account. And so for Zion... Yeah, they're they're trying to establish dominance. And once they have, they're not going to keep going and kill. Exactly. It's just part of their dominance. 
I mean, and I well, wouldn't even necessarily say it's dominance. Sometimes it's just boundaries. Sometimes it's just like, hey, buddy, back right, off. You're right. too close. That's, that's you know? very fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, or it's just like, nope, this is my ball. Like, you can yeah. have it in a minute. Hold on. You yeah. Know? It's a form of communication. It's not yeah. meant to kill most of these altercations. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I always say that all the dogs that come to me, they're good dogs that were in bad situations. And a lot of what contributes to that bad situation is people's expectations of dogs being fluffy stuffed animals all the time. They only have certain means to communicate and fluffy stuffed animals, when they have teeth and claws, that's how they're going to communicate. So tell us about Zion. This is a situation which I I don't know what kind of dog or how big Zion is, but I would have found it upsetting, but well, tell us the story before I opine on it. Yeah. So this is a case that keeps me up at night. And this is actually a case that ate at my associate attorney so much, a former associate attorney, that she had to leave the firm. She just emotionally, it was just so draining for her. And I can see why. I mean, like I said, this case keeps me up at night. So Zion is, I actually forget, I know he's a large dog and he lived in a place where he had a low fence. So he got into scuffles. I don't even like calling them fights anymore. He got into three different scuffles. One where his owner dropped the leash, another time where... I don't even remember what the second one was. And then the third time, which is the one that we're dealing with now, um, my client's husband took the dog out in the rain and slipped and fell, dropped the leash, and the dog got into another scuffle with another dog walking by um, because they lived on a place where there was a path behind their house. And in the process, the husband, when he fell, he hit his head and suffered a traumatic brain injury. But long story short, the owner of the other dog on the third incident, he said he didn't want to press charges, but then animal control said, oh, well, this dog's had prior incidents. And he's like, oh, okay, well, then I'll press charges. And the two prior incidents were treated as one and one was dismissed. That's why I can't remember what it was about. And then the remaining charge was pled out as a deferred judgment sentence, which for those of you who don't know, if you're not in Colorado, a deferred judgment sentence, it's kind of like probation where as long as you're good for the period of probation, usually 12 months, then at the end of that 12 months, that charge gets dismissed as if it never happened. So it's a pretty good deal, generally speaking, but you got to stay out of trouble. And so this third incident occurred right before the expiration, I think. Um, either right before or right after, but either way, it was a third incident. And so my client pled guilty before she hired us. And when she pled guilty, then the judge said, okay, well, I want you to relinquish your dog. And she was like, wait a minute, I need an attorney. But it was too late. She already pled guilty. Um, So we were kind of stuck with it. And so we did the best we could during sentencing to argue that the dog should not be released because we were going to appeal it because we felt that there were some legal errors throughout the process. And then the judge said, well, okay, I will order a stay pending the appeal that the dog will not be relinquished to the Buddy Center, which is owned and operated by the Dumb Friends League in Denver. But I am going to make Zion the bond for the appeal. So the Buddy Center is keeping Zion 
in the buddy center. And when dogs are labeled as dangerous, they're put in solitary confinement. They can't interact with other dogs. They can't interact with people. They're just like given food through a slot and then they might be taken out. Oh my out God. Of yeah. I mean, it's bad because the people who work at these places, they're just volunteers. They're not all dog behaviorists working part time at the Dumb Friends League. They're, you know what I mean? So it's just like teenagers and yeah. people with free time. You know, and, and they it, probably have loads of other dogs to take care of who they actually might be able to help. These dogs, well, if a dog is not crazy before he goes into that situation, he's going to be crazy afterwards. Oh, 100%. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that because dogs are so resilient. But come on, what a thing to do to a dog. It's terrible. I mean, I've had dogs, older dogs especially, don't do well. Like I had a dog who was 12 who got locked up for killing a cat, like the neighbor's next door cat. Um, And they didn't want charges to be pressed. Anyway, so they put him in solitary confinement. He was in there for like three or four months. Oh, my God. And he stopped eating. And, yeah. And dogs I, are, they're pack, at, I mean, as we all know, they, they need people around, or not people, they need someone around. Well, and what got me too was when I pointed this out to the officer who was in charge of the shelter where the dog was being kept, I said, look, he's starving himself to death. You need to let him out. And he, oh my God. he says to me, he's not starving himself. He'll be fine. I said, he's dying. And he's like, he's not dying. He, and I was like, well, what do you think he's doing? Is that on a hunger strike? Like what? I guess you have to have an unusual sense of humor to do this work. Sorry. Yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dark. Yeah, just like out with me for a weekend. But anyways, yeah, older dogs especially don't do well. Younger dogs do tend to do better, but still. And Zion's like six. He's six or seven now. So he's been in there since November. The judge locked him up. My client has to pay money every single month for him to be locked up at the buddy center for his care. She's paid like $5,000 now since November to have him just sit in a cage. And the husband died, right? I mean, did I read that? Like, come on. Like, is there no human kindness at all here? The prosecution in this case is childish, petty, just awful. They're they're awful. I've tried talking to all of them and they told me if I contact the office again, they're going to file harassment charges. And I was like, then withdraw from the case if you don't want me to talk to you anymore. And also good luck extraditing me from Pennsylvania. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, that aside, like they're terrible. And yeah, the husband died unrelated. He had heart issues and he died from unrelated heart issues because he healed from the traumatic brain injury. You say traumatic brain injury and everybody thinks like, oh, he was in a coma. No, whenever you get a bump on the head, it's always labeled as a traumatic brain injury. It's bad because it is very bad. But yeah, it's not, it doesn't mean you're going to die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't even mean you're in a coma. It doesn't even mean you got a bruise necessarily. But it means that this woman has been through a hell of a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, a yeah. A hell of a lot. She goes through that and then he dies. And I assume these people of a certain age and she loves her dog. And this is, I I can see how this case drove one of your colleagues to say, I can't do this anymore, which brings up the question. Well, you have an unusual sense of humor. Maybe that helps. But um, like people hear animal law and they're like, oh, that sounds cute. It's like fun. But it is actually one of the most, I mean, divorce law is pretty wearing. Animal law is incredibly wearing emotionally. And in this case, your client, I'm sure, loves this dog. She must, is heartbroken. So how do you deal, in all of the cases you deal with, emotions run very high in these cases. So how do you deal with that? And what would be your advice to somebody who's thinking of this line of practice as to whether they're up to it? I mean, those are really good questions. I'll get to answering that question in just a second, because I want to add, since you mentioned the husband's death, 
So not only did he die, but the prosecutor during the sentencing argument was like, oh, and by the way, court judge, I thought you should know that the husband died. And I'm not saying it's related to Zion, but it's related to Zion. Like she wouldn't say that it was related to Zion, but she's like, I just thought the court should know because this has to do with the defense's candor to the tribunal that they didn't tell the court that the husband died. And my associate was like, yeah, because that was a private tragedy. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it sort of would have been courting sympathy for your side. You know, oh my God, her husband died and you're doing this to her dog. Like it certainly wouldn't have been negative for you unless they're implying somehow that the husband died because the dog killed the husband or something. Oh yeah, no, 100%. So she was not only implying that the husband died because of Zion, because he fell, but she was also implying that the defense was lying to the court, hiding things and couldn't be trusted. And therefore that's another reason why the dog had to be relinquished pending the appeal. So, I mean, she turned a tragedy for my client into like, oh, and by the way, judge, you shouldn't trust these people. They're terrible people and you should lock up her dog. So, I mean, she turned a a negative into an even further Mm -hmm. negative. I mean, talk about adding salt to the wound. That's the level of heartlessness that we're dealing with from the prosecution on this case. Um, Not to mention my client lives in Oregon. This case is in Colorado. She moved to Oregon and we were trying to get the dog to be released because she's in Oregon. And she has been since like, November, December, I forget. I mean, she's been there for a while and they're like, "Mm, no. So, I mean, to answer your question, like, how do you deal with this? Because it's not just like, so the emotions from the clients are high, especially in dog bite cases where their dog is locked up, pet custody cases because their abusive ex is trying to take their dog from them or whatever, or just anybody trying to take your dog from from you or cat or parrot, um, whatever pet you have. That's traumatic. You love your dog or your pet like your child. So there's lots of other cases too. Like we do service animal representation. Those can be really high emotion. We do... Um, breeder contract disputes had cases where people buy parvo puppies from pet stores or breeders and then the dog dies one of my first cases in colorado was actually a parvo puppy case where the family bought a puppy i think their kids were like let's say like seven and five maybe that might actually be a little old and they wrote a letter from santa to the little girls. And so the little girl who could read was reading the letter and she gets to the bottom of it says where like, and now you have a puppy. And she's like, <gasps> and they took a video of it. And then a week later, the puppy was on its Aww. deathbed. And Awful. the little girls were like, well, what, what's wrong with the puppy? Why did like, Santa do this to us? My God. I know. It was so tragic. And the person that ran this pet store was notorious. I can't believe people even bought from her because all of her Google reviews were like, my dog died within like two days. Yeah. Well, I can't believe anything that happens with animals. So it seems like par for the course. Yeah. Good news is that pet store is now out of business. But anyway, so long story short, how do you deal with this? I really, I don't know. I mean, a lot of times I joke that between having a practice in three states and expanding the practice and just being an attorney myself while running all of this, um, that I'm a high functioning sociopath. So I think that's, (laughs) so I think that's like a part of it. You know, I don't know. I feel like when you're an attorney, no matter what, I don't really know what you could do as an attorney where you aren't going to be emotionally impacted by your clients. You just kind of have to know that for every case that doesn't go your way, there's another one that will. I often find that 
good wins out in the end. It's just a matter of how much stamina does your client have to see Mm -hmm. it through to the end because it's more draining on them. So, I mean, I really don't have any guidance on that other than I try to make sure that my office, that my staff, they have a good work-life balance. Don't answer emails or phone calls outside of business hours. Don't work on the weekends. And I think it's just good to take care of yourself when you're working in this line of work, because if you don't, yeah, it will consume you. Yeah. I mean, it would be really, really hard. I mean, as you mentioned, you had a colleague who said, Mm -hmm. can't take this. Another question that I guess comes up in why this practice might be difficult. And if you don't want to answer this, that's fine. But I can't help but wonder if sometimes you get frustrated, not just with the opposition, but with your own clients, because people are so Mm -hmm. stupid about animals. And I mentioned you have clients who have done things that are not as responsible as you would have done. And that's how they got into these problems. So are there places where you draw the line and say, I can't take this case? Well, I mean, we definitely don't do animal cruelty cases. We don't do animal cruelty defense. We We definitely have a hard, fast rule on that. That's a really hard question to answer because it's all case by case. And I mean, a lot of times, like I said, what it is, is it's a good dog in a bad situation. It's where like the leash broke or they were at a dog park or they dropped the leash. I mean, these things happen. It's human error. I've never really gotten anybody who has done something really stupid. I mean, I guess I had a guy one time like leave his dog locked up in his friend's garage the friend owned a garage that he worked on cars. I forget why he had to put the dog in the shop. And then for some reason, the friend in the morning like either forgot that the dog was in there and thought he heard someone rummaging around in his shop and he thought he was being robbed. So he called the police and the police showed up and then animal control showed up. And then it was like a scene from the Three Stooges where like all the police are running around, doo, 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 you know, and they let the dog get out. <laughs> and then the dog was freaked out because it's being chased by six oh. people. And then it just so oh. happened the dog walked by somebody who like you know was trying to catch him or whatever and he bit the guy because he was just freaked out can see that happening yeah the dog must have been a wreck by then i mean like you know is that stupid yeah it's definitely not a (laughs) series of decisions i would have made yeah no it's more stupid than evil no i definitely don't represent people who do evil things and you know kind of just something that that happened yeah and i mean in in situations like that it's like yeah well i disagree with the owner's choice that led to all of this because it definitely was preventable but that dog got locked up too right so and it's just like at the end of the day i'm like while i disagree agree with the way this person handled things at the end of the day that dog didn't deserve to get locked up because he was just being a dog and it's not like somebody who just all the time leaves their dog off the leash in bad situations where the dog's gonna get in trouble you know as you say a lot of your cases are more like the dropped leash yeah i mean i have had cases where people like they don't mend their fences and and the dogs keep getting out i've had cases like that or where people are breeding without permits and then they let their dogs get out and it's like this is the second or third time this has happened grossis oh don't don't take that one (laughs) (laughs) yeah Call me, Christina. I'll tell you. Okay. But who, who are the bad ones? Mm. All right. Speaking of, that brings up the question of like systemic animal abuse, mm-hmm. which is present in, in breeding a lot. Oh, yeah. I know you're vegan. And so you get the big picture. Thank Would you. you like to head into that direction and do cases that get involved in systemic violence against animals, you know, such as animal agriculture? Or do you want to keep to these companion animal specialties? So that's a really good question. And 
Yes. Ultimately, the goal is to end systemic violence against animals, to end systemic misclassification of animals as mere property. Um, That is for sure my life goal. But we are a small office. We're two attorneys. We're looking to expand, of course, but we got to find the right fit. And we don't have deep pockets. Our clients are just normal people. So I mean, in order to tackle the systemic issues, like I would like to have our office set up so that eventually we have the funds to be like, okay, we can do these things pro bono and we can handle these kinds of cases. We're just not there yet. So it's definitely a goal. And I kind of feel like chipping away at the animal as property designation through companion animal cases. And I include like horses, sheep, llamas, pigs, goats. Like we've had all of those animals as clients, Uh but they're not in agricultural settings necessarily. But yeah, chipping away at the definition through pet law, so to speak, is how I feel is the best way for me to contribute Mm -hmm. to taking down the system because I love taking down systems. <laughs> yeah, and we need a lot of systems taken down. Do. So, and and don't think that by asking that question, I was saying that what you're doing is not enough. I think what you're doing is amazing. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think the way in in so many instances to getting people to think more seriously about animals and how it relates to the law is in pet cases. Mm-hmm. So, advice for law students. What's your advice for law, any law students who happen to be listening? Maybe, or or people looking for a career change who might want to get involved in animal law. How hard is it to start a practice? Well, that's a great question. I've got a couple different answers. So first of all, if you're listening to this and you are a barred attorney and you're tired of what you're doing, please send me an email because I would love to talk to you. Okay. <laughs> uh, like I said, we're always hiring. We're always looking for people. And if you're already barred in New York or Texas, definitely give me a call because we don't have any boots on the ground there yet. If you're a law student or if you're an attorney with some years under your belt and you just, you know, you're tired of doing what you're doing and you're looking to start your own practice, I'm getting ready to start franchising my law firm, actually. So again, give me a call because essentially what I'm looking to do is set people up with the systems that I've already designed that are more or less foolproof and that work in any state, really, to start their own law practice. And then it's yours. And then you get my law firm's name and brand and all of that already set up. Plus you get me as a built-in mentor to help you do all of this, right? And you have the ability to make good money, honestly. It's kind of my best kept secret and I kind of hate to give it away, but I will. One of the questions that I always get at networking events is like, oh, you make money doing that? I'm like, do you make money doing what you do? Like, how rude? Why would you even say that? I'm like, no, I don't make any money. I just do this for fun. Like, but yeah, so I mean, you can make money and it, and it is possible. And if franchising doesn't sound like it's something you're interested in, best advice that I can give to you is if you're in law school right now, take as many different kinds of major theory classes that you can contracts towards property, take that family law class, even though you don't want to criminal law, civil procedure, take all the stuff, take everything you can diversify as much as possible, because animal law uses all of that. It is a problem, isn't it? Teaching it is challenging, too. It's like, I I don't know everything about every legal specialty. And every week, I'm I'm on a different legal specialty. Right. A broad base of knowledge is crucial. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. That's what I would say. And I mean, if you're currently practicing and you're kind of stuck in your rut, I I would say like, don't be scared, basically. Because when I started practicing, uh, like I said, I was working for a family law firm and they let me add on animal law. And so I was doing that almost exclusively by the time I left the law firm because I had some personal life changes going on in the background. And I moved from Pennsylvania to Colorado. And when I did that, I 
didn't have any family, friends, connections. I'd never been to Colorado before in my life. I just wanted to live in the mountains for some reason. It's because of John Muir. And anyway, so I moved to Colorado without a network and I thought, oh, I'll just work and build a network and then I'll go and work for a law firm like everybody does. But the, <laughs> the job I had tanked. It like was a sinking ship like two months after I joined. Everybody bailed. And so I had to bail too. So I Basically, I just started my own law firm at that point. I had only been practicing law for three years at that point. So I mean, that's like baby, baby lawyer. And so if you're in that same boat where you've got three years under your belt, you can do it. You just have to not be scared, which is hard. Yeah, I, I have found that hugely challenging in life. <laughs> Uh, You know, another area of law that we didn't talk about, I think it's on your website, but I'm not sure you mentioned it, but I know that other lawyers have made quite a nice living, which is very sad to say is when cops shoot dogs. Is that an area of your practice? And if it is, tell us about it. Yeah, it is. I'm not really sure what to say about it. It happens more often than you would think. It's a 1984 civil rights action. And so 1984 isn't the year, it's the code section. Right. So yeah, it's a civil rights action. We usually bring those under the 14th Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. I'm forgetting all of them. The Fourth Amendment. Well, that's okay. We don't need to know every section. Sure. But I think the interesting point about it is people don't understand that when a cop shoots a dog which they do all too often, and we'll talk about that sure. a little bit. It's it's a lot different than if your neighbor shoots a dog, which is a very hard case to bring. Mm-hmm. But when you're when a cop shoots a dog, it's a civil rights violation, and there are damages. Oh, yeah. I mean, in, in some respects, and this goes back to like my twisted sense of humor, like in some respects, a cop shooting your dog is better than your neighbor's. Oh, it's so much better. I mean, if you're looking for money. I mean, yeah. Well, if you're looking for money and to change the law. not It's not that it's a good thing. Right. It's better than your neighbor shooting a dog. Right, right. Yeah. Like if somebody calls me like a cop shot a dog. I'm like, yes. No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, because actually those cases are super hard to litigate because animals are property, right? So I mean, part of the reason why I love taking cops shooting dog cases is because here's another opportunity to change the law. Because if you get a jury on those cases, which so far I've never been to a jury on those cases, they always settle. And it's because everybody knows that if they go to a jury on those cases, they are going to get crushed. So anyway, I like those cases because of the potential to change the law. And they're just interesting to litigate, honestly, like you're arguing federal constitutional law and you're applying property doctrines to basically what someone considers their child. Yeah. And and also capable of making change, not just because changing the law, but it can change policy. I mean, sooner or later, police departments do seem to catch up to the fact that this is costing them really a lot of money and making them look bad. And they start training programs. Because a lot of the problem here is exactly the same problem we were talking about before, that a lot of cops just don't understand dogs at all. And just think if you go into somebody's yard and a dog growls at you, that means you should shoot them. Right. Whereas the dogs dogs just say, what are you doing here? And explain yourself. And I'm concerned. Right. Or the dog's like, hey, you smell like donuts. Like... (laughs) <laughs> you got one i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> kind of no <laughs> um so i i think it's a way to change policy there too like totally the whole purpose of tort law is like the damages encourage people to do the right thing so mm-hmm. by getting these damages you encourage police departments to do the right thing but as you said when your neighbor shoots your dog the chances of getting damages are very little so there's very little incentive yeah. of for people to change their 
Well, I'm, I'm going on. I'm, I'm <laughs> on my soapbox. And it's the same with veterinary malpractice too, because that's another major area that we practice in because again, pets are property. And so we're looking to change the law and the policy because we have these veterinarians who advertise on their website. Oh, we know your pet is family. We'll treat your pet like family. And then when I get in to talk to the veterinarian or the insurance agent to resolve the case, they're like, mm, pets are property. Your client adopted the dog for $100 from the shelter. We'll give you $100. And it's just yeah. like, could do you tell me to sit on it <laughs> a little bit more? You know what I mean? So, yeah. Do you find that's changing at all? Because as a teacher, I only see the reported cases. And the reported cases on vet malpractice are disastrous. I mean, there's never any damages. I, I don't know why people bring the cases, I guess, out of the goodness of their heart. But I have heard that people sometimes get settlements just because they want it to go away. They don't want publicity or whatever. Does that ever happen? Or is it still just as bad? And people really don't understand that if a vet is just completely negligent and kills your animal, there's very little you can do. I've kind of had a different experience. So veterinary malpractice, we used to only exclusively send demand letters, get the payment, like basically shuffle the paperwork back and forth to get the uh -huh. client reimbursed. And we would get not only the client reimbursed for everything paid out, but also get additional damages that covered attorney fees and emotional distress. Now, the insurance company wasn't calling it emotional dis distress. Right. That's kind of what I've heard, that you can get some money even though they don't want to change the law. Right. I think that they're getting an increase in these kinds of claims because between 2022 and to present, insurance companies are like, yeah, we'll give your client 50% of the bills and that's it. And they're not paying anything. They won't go wow. over and above. Yeah. I mean, they're really clamping down. So now it's gotten to the point where it's so bad that it's not even worth it for us to try to settle it out of court. So now we just move straight into the lawsuit. And what we're hammering them with is Consumer Protection Act fraud, because every state has a Consumer Protection Act statute. And in there, at least in Colorado, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and I'm sure it's in all the other states as well, is triple damages for fraud. And that's why I mentioned the advertising, because if a veterinarian is saying on their website, we treat your pets like family, and then come back at me and say, oh, no, pets are property. I'm like, well, then your website's lying and misleading people to come to you because they think they're going to get more than your pet is property type treatment. And they're like, what? Uh, uh. wow, that's great. So yeah, I have several cases in active litigation in Pennsylvania and New Jersey on veterinary malpractice. And it's been interesting kind of the responses that I've been getting because they all come down at me like, oh, silly girl and your silly childhood dreams. We're just going to get this dismissed. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> try. And they have. Yeah. And well, a lot of things have been tried. I mean, you know, people have brought the cases and people have tried to get statutes passed and, you know, they've been defeated. So they probably think you're going to be defeated, too. I sure hope you're not. That's a great creative way to try to get recovery for these people because it's a problem. It is. Going back to what I was saying before, the purpose of tort law is to keep people in line. If there's no damages, it's really hard to say that vets are going to be as careful as they should be. I mean, you're talking about starting a multi-state practice and franchising. That's really interesting. And that will create communication between different parts of your firm when it grows. Do you work with the bar at all, bar association committees? Are there opportunities to get involved outside of your practice? Do you, do you try to communicate with other areas of the law? Or is it basically just keep your head down and do the animal law? 
Do you mean like, do I work with or volunteer with other organizations in the animal sphere? I'm thinking specifically bar associations. Is that an important part of staying on top of this? And is that something that people should look into, whether their local bar association has an animal law committee, or is that not part of what you find useful? I definitely think, so Colorado used to have an animal law committee, and I tried to restart it, and nobody was interested. So they were just like, well, we're just going to leave it dead. And then Pennsylvania Bar Association supposedly has one, but I can't find it. I don't know about New Jersey. So I mean, to the extent that one exists, sure, go ahead and get connected. I find that a lot of people that are in these committees don't actually practice animal law themselves. They're just like interested in it. And this is kind of just a thing that they do, which is fine, because then if you're the only animal law practitioner in the animal committee, then you'll get all the referrals, right? So it makes sense. I always tell people, if you're a law student, especially join your bar association, it's free, most likely, like nine times out of 10, it's free, or it's significantly reduced. And so definitely join a bar association, go to the events network, because that's how you're going to find a job out of law school. It's not getting on law review and like writing, and making sure that the the comma isn't italicized. I <laughs> I was I was on law review. Like I say this to somebody who was on law review because they're always like, oh, law review, law review. But none of my employers when I was interviewing ever asked me about, oh, so what did you learn from law review? Oh, law review, how impressive. Nobody cared. Well, I worked at a court and, you know, I read really, really a lot of briefs. It was an appellate court and nobody cared whether the citations were in the proper format. Some the big firms, they were beautiful. And, you know, I appreciated it, but it didn't make any difference in how the case comes out. Right, right. Yeah. To answer your question, I mean, getting involved with your bar association, I think is important, just from a community perspective, just from a networking perspective. And just from like, it's good to have friends in the profession. So no matter what area of law you're practicing in, I always encourage people to get involved in their bar association, because there are resources you can take advantage of. But as far as specifically, if there's an animal law committee, I don't see any harm in joining it. Certainly not. But I have personally never found an animal law committee that either exists or that does anything. So mm-hmm. so you alluded to this, and I'm not going to ask you for specific numbers, but this is the money question, mm-hmm. literally the money question. This is financially viable? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely viable. I went from, when I started my law practice in 2017, I was on Medicaid. I think that's the one, regardless of age. I was yeah, on Medicaid. I probably could have qualified for food stamps, but I didn't do it. Right. So you Um, were broke. I mean, yeah, I was wicked broke. I was wicked broke. And so I don't say that to scare people. The reason why I say that is for comparison. So I started in April 2017. And then by April 2019, I went on a month long trip to two different countries uh, around the world. So I mean, if that gives you any indication of the potential that animal law has or that pet law has. I mean, yeah, it's an unmet need for sure. And that just just that alone does you can't fail. Do you see basically keeping doing the cases you're doing? Or do you see a trajectory issues that we're not discussing that should be on people's radar directions in which animal law is going? That's a really good question. I don't know that I have an answer to that. Hopefully what we're trying to do is to get damages. Like you said, you know, the damages is what changes things. So, I mean, hopefully the trajectory is that harm to animals will result in damages to their people. As far as like issues, I mean, I think we've talked about all of them. I was kind of saying at 
the beginning or the middle or wherever it was. I think pet law is the way that's going to pave the way to changing how we treat animals in agriculture as well, because that's animal cruelty. There's just no other way around it. And I think that that is often overlooked by animal advocacy groups. I think they think that if they keep staging the protests and taking the chickens out of the factories, I think that's awesome. And I'm not putting it down at all. And we represent those people because it's criminal charges, right? So we represent them and we work with groups like that. And I love working with groups like that. But what brings people closer is being like, oh, your dog is worth as much as your TV remote in the court size. And then they're like, oh, are you serious? Not my no, baby. That is something that horrifies people. Yeah. yeah. And when you can change people's minds about what they have in front of them, then they're more open to the idea of having a conversation about the cows in concentrated animal feeding operations. I don't know if that really answers your question, but I, I really hope that that's the trajectory that pet law is going to go to eventually yeah. pave the way for real change when it comes to animal rights across the board. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a specific theory of change because who knows what we're going to do about this because it's such an inexplicable, horrifying world. But <laughs> I think that's I think that's really an important... I think I agree with you. And I always uh, spend a number of classes in my course, which is on all of animal law, on pet law, because I think it's kind of the gateway drug in, in, <laughs> into people. And I think that's that's a really important piece of the puzzle. So I really, really think it's important what you're doing. And for people to become aware that the law treats animals like dirt. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. like dirt. And each time these cases get a little press or whatever, I think that does become more, more obvious to people. I was going to complete the interview there, but then you mentioned that you do criminal defense for protests and whatever. Is that something you would like to do or that you're already doing? Or Yeah. I hadn't realized that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're already doing it. I mean, it doesn't come all the time because a lot of times these groups have their own internal counsel that will represent them or they'll hire the public defender or whatever because they don't know that we exist a lot of times is what the issue is. But but, I mean, yeah, we love working with animal advocates in whatever we can do, especially doing criminal defense because there's just so much we can just do so much with it because it just has the potential to really change things. So yeah, we do represent animal advocates in all forms. That's good to know because I think the the knowledge that there are lawyers out there willing to take the case is empowering to people who want to take some kind of action. So I, I'm really glad to hear that. I'm really glad to hear about all of the work you're doing, Christina. I can't wait Thanks. till there's an animal law firm. It's just called the animal law firm, right? Yes, ma'am. I can't wait till there's an animal law firm on every corner. Um, (laughs) Well, maybe not every corner, but almost every corner. And I can say I interviewed her when. So very exciting, (laughs) very exciting work that you're doing. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate what you do as well, educating people on these important topics. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We will be back next month with a new show. Thanks so much to Christina for taking the time to tell us about her practice. Thanks also to Vicki Beachler, to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven, and to Andrew Gelfand for their help in producing the podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts. And if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org. Thank you so much for tuning in.